The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. This is the American Greed Podcast presented by CNBC. I'm Stacy Keach. In this episode of American Greed, in the big money world of fine and rare wine, there's one name that's spoken with awe, Rudy Kurniawa. He had the deepest cellar of the most collectible wines in the world. He was able to produce them, and that made him a star. Rich collectors want to fill their cellars with trophy wines, and Kurniawan is their source. So it kind of became a feeding frenzy for these mythical wines that really don't exist very often in the world. Selling wine to billionaires makes Kurniawan a fortune. Rudy Kurniawan loved the high life. He spent his money on every kind of luxury you can imagine. He was building a mansion in Beverly Hills. He bought cars like a Lamborghini. But when experts look closely at his bottles, they discover a massive crime. The funny thing is that this, this label has a lot of things wrong with it. This bottle, which came from Rudy Kurniawan, is counterfeit. The label in this particular case is a reproduction. It's fake. Something was too good to be true. It's called the Cote d'Or, the Golden Slope. These gently rolling hills in the Burgundy region of France produce what many consider to be the world's finest wine. There is a flavor balance that is both powerful and, and utterly soft and feminine. It is really an iron fist in a velvet glove. Visitors are often surprised by how tiny Burgundy's vineyards are. The legendary Romani Conti vineyard, for example, is just over four acres. Or to use a classic American yardstick, it's the size of three football fields. It's the most expensive piece of land in the world. And they make a finite number of bottles. You know, in a good year, they'll make 8,000 bottles of that wine. That's not very much considering the global population. At auction, a single bottle can fetch tens of thousands of dollars. So people want this wine because it's rare. It's expensive because it's rare, but it also is, to anybody who really knows wine, the best wine in the world. Laurent Ponceau is one of Burgundy's most respected winemakers. His ancestors first produced wines from these vineyards in 1872. And Ponceau has been perfecting the family tradition since the 1980s. I have one rule is not to have a root. I would compare it to a chain. The chain starts with the roots of the vine and ends in the glass of wine while you're drinking. In between, you have many elements of this chain, and human beings are only one element. Having that in mind, everything I do in the vineyards is related to this idea to respect what Mother Nature is giving. In April 2008, Ponceau gets an email from a friend in New York. And he asked me a very silly question. Since when do you produce the Clos Saint-Denis? Clos Saint-Denis is one of the grands crus that we, we produce now. 
And I could not answer to this question. I had to send a, a, another question. Why are you asking? The friend replies that some of Ponzo's Clos Saint-Denis wines are going up for sale at auction. They are vintages from the 1940s to the 1970s. I was sitting, fortunately, otherwise I would fall down. <laughs> we started to produce this in 1982. Ponzo is certain the wine is fake. He learns the bottles are being sold by Rudy Kurniawan, a young Indonesian living in California. And, as U.S. investigators will later prove, Rudy Kurniawan is the most notorious wine fraudster of all time, selling tens of millions of dollars in fake wine to collectors with more money than skepticism. Kurniawan's love affair with wine begins, he says, in a postcard setting, Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco. So what Rudy Kurniawan claimed was that he got hooked on wine in the early 2000s when he had a bottle of Opus One at a dinner with his father, and that he was hooked. At the time, he was in his very early 20s, and he would buy California Merlot, and I mean, he was really kind of what we call a newbie. In 2001, wine fraud expert Maureen Downey is working in a New York auction house when she first meets the newbie collector. One year later, they meet again. Kurniawan has amassed an impressive seller in an amazingly short time. He tells Downey he wants to do business with her and sell some of his wines through her auction house, Zaki's. And he showed up with a posse. Literally, he had like a group of guys with him. And he told me that he wanted to be a player and that Zaki's should take his wine because he was going to become a player in the wine market. That was a totally different Rudy than the guy I had known a year ago. Downey sees a few red flags. For one thing, she is suspicious of how quickly he's become a connoisseur. Rudy went kind of from zero to 60 in about four seconds. You know, as an analogy, he went from California Merlot to old and rare, still Merlot from Bordeaux, you know, straight into Burgundy. And that, it's just not natural that anybody would go through those steps that quickly. Another red flag is the record of ownership of the wine he's offering for sale, or rather, the lack of a record. Its history is a mystery. So I knew something was, was strange, and he couldn't come up with receipts for the wine. So there was a number of problems that I had with them. So ultimately, I rejected the wines and uh, never took wine from him again. That's when I knew something was wrong, and that was in 2002. For years, Downey is alone with her doubts, and Kurniawan goes on to become the player he wants to be. Kurniawan tells the LA Times he spends $1 million a month buying incredibly rare wine, most of it from the great domains of Bordeaux and Burgundy. In just a few years, he becomes a dominating presence at fine wine auctions in New York, according to former federal prosecutor Jason Hernandez. He would stand up in the auction room, hold up his paddle, and he wouldn't sit down. So he wouldn't engage in the usual back and forth of the bidding process. What he was signaling to other buyers was, this lot is mine, I'm gonna pay anything for it, and I'm gonna get it. So at the time in the world of serene wine auctions, to have someone as brash as that, uh, as young, stand up with their paddle to compete against multimillionaires, sometimes billionaires, for wine, uh, it really stood out. 
it gave him a name, it gave him the credibility he needed, that he wanted, and the attention, I think, that he desired, too. Kurniawan himself is an enigma. Of Chinese ancestry, but born and raised in Indonesia, Kurniawan tells a reporter, my family is very private. Burgundy collector Don Cornwell sees Rudy in action at wine auctions. Like many people, he wonders where he gets his money. Cornwell asks him point blank, what do you do for a living? Rudy's answer was that he didn't work. He was a member of a very wealthy Indonesian family. And that you know, he took care of his mother and he was a wine collector. He's a 24-year-old, independently wealthy wine collector that came out of nowhere. Stories abound. He tells some people his family owns a beer distributorship in Indonesia. Sometime, he says, it's Heineken. Other times, he says, Guinness. There were so many different stories that he was telling that I find it hard to believe that anybody bought it. But they do. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When he visits friends in New York, the LA-based wine collector Rudy Kurniawan parties hard. Still in his 20s, Kurniawan has already amassed one of the world's most valuable sellers of fine and rare wine. And he likes to share. Jay McInerney, author of Bright Lights, Big City, a novel about life in the fast lane in Manhattan, knows about wild parties. Now a wine writer, when McInerney attends a party with Rudy and his crew, even he's impressed with what he sees. There was a bottle of 1914 Paul Roger in the room. You know, a wine that was made when the uh, when, when shells were raining down on the German shells were raining down on the vineyards in, in, in Champagne. Although it happened to be a really great year, certainly several hundred thousand dollars worth of wine were consumed. People people were opening. Uh, $10,000 bottles at the tables. But these are not staged, stuffy affairs, according to journalist Ben Wallace. There was this group called the 12 Angry Men who were a tasting group. But of these very kind of macho, bombastic guys, and they had nicknames like Big Boy and King Angry. They'd talk about bringing the lumber. Like if you brought the lumber, it meant you'd brought some really expensive rare bottle to one of their tastings and opened it. And Rudy was sort of a, a honorary member of this group. Kurniawan's nickname is Dr. Conti, after one of his favorite wines, Domaine Romani Conti in Burgundy. A key member of the group is John Capon, an auctioneer and head of the New York auction house Acker, Merrill, and Condit. Wallace says Capon is cut from a different cloth than most auctioneers. John Capon had been a hip-hop producer, and he his tasting notes would, you know, liken wines to cocaine and pot and chocolate sex. These are quotes from some of the club's tasting notes. 
The wine was pure sex in the nose. Blossoms, rainwater, and almost a cocaine-like edge. Sweaty sex on the beach. But they would also write tasting notes that were just, I mean, totally offensive, and send them out to thousands of people talking about things, um, for example, maybe the aroma between a nun's legs, and things that were just so foul. The whole lack of decorum, the lack of respect for the wine. You know, drinking 50 bottles in a night is not respectful to the wine. In this posse, Rudy plays the quiet, nerdy expert, and his knowledge is astounding. The 12 angry men often hold blind tastings, where the taster is supposed to guess grape, vintage, and producer. The wines they pour are legendary, almost mythical. And Kurniawan seems to have a sixth sense for naming them. But he was known as a great blind taster. He could nail the wine, he could tell you the year, he could tell you the, the producer, he could tell you the grapes. So that gave him quite a bit of credibility. Everybody just kind of wanted to believe. Uh, there, were, there was so much reason to believe and, and so little reason to, um, to really dig into this problem. The problem of counterfeit wine. Though collectors are alert to the possibility of fakes, the wine market is booming and everyone is making money. He was creating a lot of business for the auction houses. Uh, he was buying, he was selling. Uh, he was pumping up the market in a sense. He, re he really, he and a handful of other collectors really um, inflated the market in the last decade. Or it may be that Rudy's effect is intoxicating, both figuratively and literally. As Kurniawan tells a reporter, I'm not a collector, I'm a drinker. Wine is something you open and you share. Rudy could be at a dinner with a bunch of other multimillionaires or a billionaire, and the dinner tab could be $50,000, and Rudy would just pick up the tab. And that's what helped earn his reputation as a very generous guy. There are a number of people I met who over the years were very impressed with Rudy simply because Rudy provided them with a lot of free wine and free dinners. But at these lavish dinners, Rudy displays an interesting quirk. He always asks the sommelier to set aside his empty bottles. In this email, Rudy writes to a sommelier, My bottles, I would like you to put a cork on all bottles so sediments won't flow all over. Don't wash them, as I need them to look original for photo shoot. The sommeliers usually oblige. But after one dinner, according to Don Cornwell, Rudy learns the empty bottles have been tossed out. Rudy just freaked out, absolutely freaked out, started yelling and screaming at people about getting the bottle back, that he wanted his bottle back, and made them go out to the dumpster and go dumpster diving to find the bottle for him. And there, there are a few other stories like this, but it, yeah, it did bother people. Why would Kurniawan be so obsessed with retrieving an empty bottle? Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave.
In 2006, as the price of fine wine skyrockets, Rudy Kurniawan decides he's ready to cash in his chips. He had the deepest cellar of the most collectible wines in the world. Those are first-growth Bordeaux, that's Chateau Mouton Rothschild and Chateau Lafitte, and Grand Cru Burgundy. And this man who burst onto the wine scene in the early 2000s had wines that everyone thought were gone from the earth that no one else had ever seen before, long since gone. To sell these impossible-to-find wines, Kurniawan turns to New York-based auction house Acker Maryland Condit, which is run by his friend John Capon. Kurniawan himself stays in the shadows. Capon says the seller wishes to remain anonymous. And he describes the offering as the greatest seller in America, beyond compare. Capon calls the collection, which goes to auction January 27, 2006, The Seller, with a capital T-H-E. And they were promoted as purchasing one of the greatest wine collections that Acker Merrill or anyone else had ever seen, and they had some of the greatest wine treasures in the world. The Seller clears $10.6 million. It's so successful that nine months later, in October 2006, Kurniawan and Capon quickly follow it up with the Cellar 2. And combined, those auctions sold almost $35 million worth of wine, which at the time, and for quite a while, was the record for the highest sales from a single person's cellar. Acker Merrill makes millions, since commissions as high as 20% are common in the industry. And the two sales catapult Capon's company from auction house also ran to top dog. As for Rudy, he's drinking life to the last drop. Rudy Cornelon loved the high life. He spent his money on every kind of luxury you can imagine. He wore custom Hermes suits. He wore Chrome Heart sunglasses. He wore Patek Philippe watches. He was building a mansion in Beverly Hills. He bought cars like a Lamborghini, he had a Mercedes, he had a Range Rover. He bought uh, contemporary art. Including works by Andy Warhol and Damien Hirst. In 2007, Kurniawan spent $6 million, charging it all to his American Express card. $200,000 of that spending is just at one store, the high-end fashion house Hermes. Anything that he could spend, and of course wine, anything that he could buy that was luxurious, he was interested in. He loved attention. He loved being the center of the attention of the wine world but he also loved being the guy who could find the rare treasures, the wines that no one else could find. Rudy could find them in full case lots. He could find them in magnums. He could find them when no one else could. And I think that gave him quite the ego boost. It really made him feel special and powerful. But he doesn't have long to bask in the glory. Maureen Downey says she doubts Rudy from the time he first tried to sell wine through her. And once he starts selling in a big way, Downey says the evidence is clear. Rudy's magic seller is a fairy tale. She cites Ackermarrow Condit's amazing grace sale of Kurniawan's wine. Comes out and it describes Rudy as having these 1961 Latour Pomerols, which are the holy grail of wine collecting. Um, a whole case of that wine had not been seen for years on the global wine markets. And all of a sudden it describes Rudy as having just under three cases, 
all from the same importer and in his possession for decades. Rudy was in his mid-20s, so he was either the most prolific buyer of old and rare wine as a toddler, or that consignment introduction was a lie. From there, I knew that he was making counterfeit wine. At a tasting of Kurniawan's wine in New York, a well-known Burgundy producer named Christophe Rumier says the wine doesn't taste right. He says that in his expert opinion, the bottles are fake. And what's more, they're not even Burgundy. Yeah, it was kind of a creeping, a creeping doubt. And it was tricky because these were the same people who were, you know, the beneficiaries of Rudy's largesse. And so I think something psychologically happens where it's hard to kind of pivot and begin to think of him as maybe a guy who's been duping you when he's a guy who's been so kind to you. But even Kurniawan's harshest critics lack solid proof of fraud. The fact is, says winemaker Laurent Ponceau, taste is subjective, and an impressive label can override doubt. Romani Conti is famous. When you have a bottle of Romani Conti, you know what it is. You are, your mind is, is ready to, to drink a great bottle. So when you serve a bottle of 1959 Clos Saint-Denis to a critic, saying that this is a Ponceau from the ancient time, he would say, well, wow, good wine. And, and the fakers are playing on that. Playing also on the fact that when you buy old bottles, it's a lottery. A lottery because temperature, humidity, even small variations in a cork can affect the taste of wine. In other words, there's just enough ambiguity for Rudy Kurniawan to get away with it. At least for now. Laurent Ponceau runs Domaine Ponceau, one of Burgundy's best producers. In 2008, he gets an email from a friend in New York. The friend says John Capon, the owner and auctioneer of Acker Merrill Condit, is about to sell some of Ponceau's wines. The wines from the cellar of Rudy Kurniawan purport to be from the Clos Saint-Denis vineyard with vintages from the 1940s to the 1970s. But Ponceau didn't make wine from that vineyard until 1982. There's no doubt, the wines are fake. When you discover, as a winemaker, that someone is faking your wines, the first idea is a little glory, you know? Wow, I'm good. They fake my bottle. But very quickly, I had the other uh, idea. People will open it and be disappointed. So this is not what I want. And on top of it, you kill the spirit of Burgundy. You kill the spirit of the wine. Ponceau calls Capon and asks, who has decided the wine is authentic? He says, it's me. Oh, okay, well, and you are the auctioneer, the expert, and you make money? Well, uh, he says, no, but really, I, I can tell you, this is, uh, these are authentic wines. Do you know who you are talking to? I said, because he, he was, I mean, insisting that they were, they were real. Frustrated by what he sees as Capon's refusal to see the cold hard facts of vintage, Ponceau calls again and extracts a promise from Capon that he will withdraw the wines from the sale. But he was a yes that I could not take for a real yes. So the next day, uh, I jumped into in a plane and I, I landed in New York at four o'clock and the, the auction was at six. At 6.10, I was there. Ponzo's mission is to stop the sale of his wines. But when he walks in, everyone's having fun, according to Jay McInerney, who was there. It was the kind of auction where Rob Rosagna, who was the major consigner at the auction, 
uh, at one point interrupted the proceedings to, uh, to saber the top off of a Jeroboam of uh, 1945, I believe it was Bollinger, just whacked the top of the bottle off with a, with a sword. And on the one hand, as I say, it was very exuberant, but there was a, there was a sort of a shadow uh, that was cast over the proceedings. McInerney knows Laurent Ponceau and sees him walk in. It's obvious that if Ponceau has a saber, he won't be using it on a bottle. His demeanor was very much in contrast to that of everyone else in the room. He was, he was sitting alone, he was silent, um, almost grave. Ponceau opens the auction catalog and he reads the descriptions, like this one of lot 420, a 1959 vintage of Claude de la Roche. Its nose oozed out gorgeous cherry fruit, that forward warm sweet fruit of 1959. It must be Capon's imagination talking because the wine is fake. These are Ponzo's handwritten notes from that day. But when I saw the catalog and I was sitting next to a very uh, famous collector and I said, don't buy this, don't buy this. They are fake. He bought them. And six months later, he has to be refound. <laughs> Ponceau takes a seat where he knows Capon will see him and waits to see if the auctioneer will keep his promise. And when the Ponceau lots came to auction, he said, at the request of the winery with the accordance of the owner, I'm going to withdraw the wines from the auction. And then people were mumbling everywhere and so on. And, and there was a general air of disappointment. Uh, people shouting obscenities. When the auction ends, Rudy is asked about the fakes. Rudy's response was, it happens. And he tried to say that he had bought these wines from somebody else, but he wouldn't identify who he bought them from. Ponceau calls a lunch meeting. He and a friend sit on one side of the table, Kurniawan and Capon on the other. We sat, and then very quickly I asked the question, where are these wines coming from? And suddenly, both, for, uh, both people, uh, the four eyes, were watching the plate. <laughs> well, we don't know. Uh, and I, know, I knew that uh, Kyunawan was a liar. <laughs> liar. So this was the second where I decided to start the crusade. It was at that moment. Ponceau begins to investigate Kyunawan while pretending to be his friend. So he gave me some information, like uh, the name of the guy who sold him the wine. Uh, name was Pak Hendra, and he was from Jakarta. When I very quickly investigated, Pak means Mr., and Hendra is like Smith. <laughs> Mr. Smith, okay. Kurniawan also gives two phone numbers for Pak Hendra. One is the number for an Indonesian airline, the other is a fax machine in a supermarket. Very easy, easily I discovered that it was just BS. <laughs> so after my investigation, I found out that out of the 81 bottles on the sale, one was real. Only one. At this time, complaints are coming in to the Department of Justice, and the FBI opens an investigation. So that event and his inability to explain to the curious public where he got the wines from, how much he paid for them, any sourcing or provenance information really led people to think that maybe this isn't a guy who was duped himself. Maybe this guy is trying to pull a fast one on everyone else. 
Kurniawan is losing friends in high places. At least two extremely wealthy men have bought highly questionable wine from him. David Doyle, the founder of Quest Software, and Bill Koch, a billionaire energy executive. Koch's brothers, Charles and David, are well known for their political activity. Bill is well known for bad luck in the wine department. In the 80s, he buys bottles of Bordeaux once owned supposedly by Thomas Jefferson. They are proven to be fake, allegedly made by a German counterfeiter named Hardy Rodenstock. Later, when Kurniawan comes on the scene, Coke is taken again. For 421 bottles that are definitely fake, I've spent $4.5 million. So that's a pretty big swindle. In 2008, Coke files suit against Ackermerrill Condit and in 2009, files suit against Kurniawan, seeking millions of dollars in damages. I'm tired of the aggravation of uh, being violated by these con artists and crooks. The lawsuits don't stop Kurniawan, they just drive him underground. The auction houses drop Rudy like a hot rock after April 2008. That's the big impact. Now Rudy cannot sell wine publicly. But he can sell wine under a different name. In the winter of 2012, nearly four years after the notorious Ponceau sale, Burgundy collector Don Cornwell opens an auction catalog from London-based Vanquish. Looked at it, said, oh my God, these are Rudy wines. He's selling under a friend's name, but Cornwell sees Rudy's handiwork all over it. They're all nothing but the very best of the best. They're in nothing but the very best vintages. There isn't a bad vintage or a bad bottle among them, and, and they ha that they're all new labels. They all look like they were made yesterday because they were made yesterday. Cornwell calls Vanquish, saying they're about to make a huge mistake. I said, you've got no choice. I mean, you guys either withdraw those wines uh, completely from Rudy, or I will end up going public with this. Cornwell does go public, posting an urgent warning on the preeminent website for wine collectors. Vanquish withdraws the wine from sale. Somebody had to do it. I mean, I just, I reached a saturation point. He had ruined the hobby that I fell in love with. By now, the FBI has enough evidence to get a search warrant for Kurniawan's home. For several years, Rudy Kurniawan has spent millions renovating a mansion in the Bel Air neighborhood of Los Angeles. But his primary home is in Arcadia. It's a quiet suburb east of Pasadena and home to many Chinese immigrants. Kurniawan's neighbors have no idea what he's been up to inside this townhouse. But the FBI is about to find out. On March 8, 2012, they knock on his front door with a search warrant in hand. What we found was a, a treasure trove of evidence. It was a wine counterfeiting factory in his house. Inside, Kurniawan's house looks a bit like a high-end hoarder show. Wine crates and bottles are everywhere. And by the looks of his treadmill, he isn't getting much exercise. He had bottles that had no labels on them that were lined up almost like in an assembly line in his kitchen being prepared to have one of the thousands and thousands of wine labels that we found from all the world's greatest wines strewn throughout different parts of the home. There were even bottles with labels soaking in the kitchen sink so that the labels could be removed from the bottles. 
Prosecutor Jason Hernandez takes American Greed inside the evidence vault to see some of the items seized from Kurniawan's home. Throughout the house and some of the evidence that was introduced in the trial were bags and bags of corks containing corks of many different sizes and from many different kinds of wines, both used corks as well as blank corks that were found during, during the arrest. And this is a recorking device. It's used to insert a cork into this chamber and then push down to push a cork back into a bottle. Hernandez and the FBI learned that Kurniawan's technique changed over time. Early Rudy, as it's called, was fairly simple. Remember how he asked restaurant workers to save his empties and ship them to his home? He could drink the authentic bottle with his friends, which gave him more credibility. And then he could refill that bottle with something else and resell it. But that technique doesn't make him millions. For big money, he needs to scale up. Another way to do it is to basically recreate the whole bottle. And since his home had so many thousands of labels, that clearly was the preferred method. Rudy acquires old glass from lesser quality burgundy. Glass from, say, the 40s or the 50s looks different from glass that's more contemporaneous. Then he takes a real high-end label, scans it, and photoshops it. Once he had the master perfected, he could then reproduce any vintage of that wine that he wanted. The next step is where Rudy really works his money-making magic, turning $100 worth of ingredients into a $10,000 fake bottle. When we went into the kitchen, there were easily 20 open bottles of wine. Some were very, very high-end wines, wines that were several hundred dollars a bottle, but also some that were maybe $20 a bottle. And what that appeared to be is a, basically a mixing station, a, a place where different trial runs could be made. On some bottles, the master mixologist writes formulas. There were handwritten notations written on the bottle, a formula, one-third this, one-third that, to create a blend that would then be tested to see whether it could pass as 1945 Mouton Rothschild. And when it's good to go, there are the final brush strokes. Brand the cork, which you can use, use just simply an ink pad and a stamp, and then plunge the cork in, put the foil on, and then age the bottle and the label. So you discolor it, do certain things to it to make the labels look a little bit older than they are, because if you're gonna pass off a 60-year-old bottle of wine, it should have some age on it. And for that, nothing beats a spot of tea. His work is so good, it can fool a winemaker himself. I said to myself, gosh, it's a fantastic work. <laughs> And I had more than bottles, I had labels, I had a lot of evidence in hands. And when you put the label made by Rudy Kirnewan and the label originally staying in our cupboard, and you put that in the light like this, like this, nearly no difference. These are actually from the cellar. Wine fraud expert Maureen Downey examines some of the Kirnewan bottles. And like a CSI detective, she can find the truth with a blue light. For example, Paper made after 1960 contains a bleach that glows under the right illumination. So if you have bottles that are supposed to be from the 20s and 30s, and you turn the lights out, or even the, you know, the 40s, 1947, and you turn the lights out and the paper fluoresces, you know that that paper was made in the 1960s or later. Downey's trained eye has discovered what she calls Rudy Tells. 
This bottle here is a magnum, allegedly, of 1961 Chateau Petrus. The funny thing is that this, this label has a lot of things wrong with it. For one thing, the label is a sticker. And that is a telltale sign of Rudy Kurnia Wand production. Um, it has been falsely aged. It's not on the right paper stock. And more importantly, it has a Rudy tell that I can only find on Rudy Kurnia Wand made wines. And it's something that I can actually, again, tra trace back to the templates on his computer. And that is that this E has an extended middle line. And that is um, not seen in regular production. It's only seen in Kurnia Wand production. On March 8, 2012, Kurnia Wand is taken into custody and charged with five counts of fraud. He pleads not guilty. On December 9, 2013, at the federal courthouse in Manhattan, the criminal trial of Rudy Kurniawan begins. The prosecutors believe the man obsessed with red wine has been caught red-handed. Our wine expert testified that after examining all the labels we seized from his home, that there were approximately 19,000 wine labels similar to these that were seized. Aubert Duvelin, co-owner of legendary Burgundy producer Domaine Romani Conti, testifies that Kurniawan has labels to very old vintages. Vintages the actual domain hasn't seen in years. He says seeing the government exhibits is extraordinary, like it is for a movie. The number of labels that we found matching 1934 Latash far exceeds the number of actual authentic bottles of 1934 Latash that could have been found at the wine market in the 2000s. The prosecution also reveals the sorry state of Kurniawan's finances. He spends so much on wine, clothes, and cars that even the huge sales aren't making ends meet. In 2007, while charging $6 million to his American Express, Rudy emails multimillionaire David Doyle asking for an urgent $3 million loan. He writes, in real deep can you help while we wait on others? At his post-sale report at the end of Seller 2 shows a negative balance, which means that at the end of that sale, that largest sale ever, Rudy owed Acromero Condit money. That's because the auction house, along with other individuals, advances Kurniawan millions of dollars before the sales. And it gets worse. When customers return wine they think is counterfeit, Acromero Condit takes a hit. Ultimately, Acker wins a $10.4 million judgment against Rudy Kurniawan. In trial, Kurniawan's lawyer presents explanations for nearly everything found in his home. The blacked-out windows? Kurniawan didn't want sunlight to spoil his wine. The stacks of fake labels? His lawyer suggests Kurniawan could have used them as wallpaper. The prosecutor calls this preposterous, and the jury agrees. On December 18th, 2013, they find Rudy Kurniawan guilty on two counts of fraud. And when uh, the verdict has been said, uh, he was really disappointed. He was really in bad shape, bad shape. And I, I always watched him during that period, and I was satisfied that really, for once, he could understand that he was a bad guy. Because until that moment, he was sure that he was not. 
a deny of reality like that I've never seen in my life. Incredible, incredible. One surprising fact of Kurniawan's life is revealed at trial. During the entire length of the fraud, he was living in the United States illegally. That's why this supposed lover of French wine never traveled to France. He wouldn't have been able to get back into America. In August of 2014, Kurniawan is sentenced to 10 years in prison. After he serves his time, Kurniawan will be immediately deported to Indonesia. But I cannot say I'm happy. You cannot be happy that someone is going to jail. Uh, he's caught doing something wrong. Uh, I was satisfied. This is the word. There are some enduring mysteries in the Kurniawan story. Remember the time Maureen Downey met him as a young man? And he showed up with a posse, and he told me that he wanted to be a player. That was a totally different Rudy than the guy I had known a year ago. Why the sudden change? And who was this posse? Laurent Ponceau believes Rudy was part of a larger counterfeit ring. He argues there's simply no way one man could produce tens of thousands of fake bottles. I calculated that it takes one hour to fake a bottle. You cannot do that in your kitchen. No, you have to have a laboratory someplace, nearly a factory, <laughs> and some, some fellows working for you. It's impossible otherwise. Nearly everyone agrees there was plenty of see no evil to go around. Rudy Kurniawan was definitely motivated by greed, but there are others that profited from this too. People were bidding, they were buying, the economy was good. So it was really the right time for Rudy Kurniawan, for him to come onto the scene, because people weren't asking too many questions and they were raising their paddles a lot. And that meant profit. Thanks for listening to the American Read Podcast presented by CNBC. I'm Stacy Keach. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.